Hello, I'm Arielle Kroon. And I'm Christina Della Rocha. Welcome to Season 2 of Solar Punk Presence, the podcast introducing you to the people working today to create a future we'd like to live in. Because if solar punk as a genre of fiction dreams about the just and sustainable world we'd like to live in in the future, solar punk as a movement rolls up its sleeves and gets down to the business of bringing it about. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 2-7. One thing that comes up from time to time, especially these days of backsliding towards medieval thought, is the so-called conflict between science and religion. Especially the more fundamental strains of the Abrahamic religions, it's something that I, as a non-religious person who doesn't like to be told what to believe, don't quite understand. As a scientist, I have also known a number of deeply devout people, Christian, Muslim, and Jew, who have also been earnest and successful earth scientists. I thought I'd talk to one of them to ask how he sees the conflict between science and Christianity, what he thinks about it, and how he deals with it. The person I chose is Dr. Norm Nelson, a researcher at UC Santa Barbara who uses optical equipment, both remote from satellites and in situ lowered over the side of a ship, to measure how much of the Earth's carbon is stored in dissolved organic matter, so things like polysaccharides, lipids, and proteins, in ocean water. This is a big deal, because that's carbon that isn't in the atmosphere's carbon dioxide, and it would be good to know how much is there as dissolved organic matter in the ocean, and how long it tends to stay in that form, before being oxidized back to carbon dioxide and returning to the atmosphere to influence climate as a greenhouse gas. One last thing before I get to our conversation. Your support is really important to us. So go sign up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com backslash solarpunkpresence. And now, here's Norm. Hi, Christina. How are you doing? Pretty well. Drying out after a long week of rain, but yeah. Uh, It's been a crazy winter for California. Could you briefly introduce yourself to our listeners out there? Uh, my name is Norm Nelson. I'm a researcher at the University of California, Santa Barbara. I am an oceanographer and a biological oceanographer. And my specialty, particularly in the last 10 years, has been studying ocean carbon cycling um, from the point of view of uh, dissolved organic material in the ocean. Uh, the tools I mostly use are optical, use light sensors and uh, things that measure the optical properties of the water. And that includes uh, ocean color remote sensing. So some of the work I do is connected to surveying the whole ocean from space, as well as um, seeing what's going on in the ocean interior. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself as a scientist? I've done a lot of work on developing techniques for measuring absorption spectra, a lot of spectroscopy type stuff, absorption and fluorescence spectra of particles in the water and dissolved organic material in the water. Because it's important to know how much carbon the ocean holds in dissolved and particulate form. Right. Because that's, that's carbon that's not in the atmosphere. Yeah, right, exactly. And so productivity in the ocean uh, tends to tie up carbon in, in biomass. And some of that biomass actually sinks deeper into the ocean where the decomposition is much slower. And so that carbon that belongs to those organisms tends to stay in the ocean a long time. Also, as a sort of a byproduct of productivity, organisms will release material into the ocean that's dissolved. It tends to be yellow. Uh, like many other forms of dissolved organic carbon. Exactly. And uh, <laughs> you, 
you can actually see that from space. Um, you can actually tell with a sensor on a satellite, a color sensor, basically how green the ocean is, which will tell you how much chlorophyll is in there, or how white the ocean is, which tells you how much particle load, especially from scattering things like coccolithophores that have very bright, you know, white surfaces on them. And how yellow it is will basically tell you a little bit about the, the dissolved organic matter in the ocean and what its nature is. And, um, you know, some of that uh, is a little bit deceptive because a lot of the dissolved organic matter in the ocean has no color to it. It's, it's clear and it doesn't absorb light in the visible way that we can spot from space. Some of it does. And my current sort of operating paradigm is that the stuff that's got color in it, particularly in the deep ocean, reflects the quantity of the refractory carbon in the ocean, the stuff that doesn't get broken down by microbes and turned back into carbon dioxide very quickly. Uh, so once it's in the deep ocean, whether it's carbon dioxide or whether it's dissolved organic matter or whether it's particles, it'll stay there a long time. But figuring out how that's partitioned and what the lifetime of all these different types of substances are in the ocean, that's much bigger than my pay grade, but I do little bits that are associated with that. How did you get into oceanography? Like a lot of kids my age, I watched a lot of Jacques Cousteau on the television when I was very young, and that got me very interested in the ocean. Uh, my first love, though, really was space and astronomy. And I had, you know, my whole career planned out. I was going to be a military pilot and become an astronaut and go to Mars or something. And, and then I think around, you know, 1975, I stopped being able to hit a fastball and realized that I was nearsighted. And in those days, that disqualified you from being an astronaut. So I thought, well, okay, the next big exploration thing that I'm also interested in is the ocean. And that, that kind of set me on that course. I ended up in graduate school working on productivity by phytoplankton uh, with Barbara Preslin. Sort of my part of the problem was figuring out how uh, light was absorbed to light energy was absorbed by phytoplankton to to drive photosynthesis in the ocean. And so that's that's kind of what got me into doing uh, optical technology, which was, you know, has kind of been a dominant theme in my career is developing and, and applying, you know, things like that to look at like like light fluxes in the ocean and what they can tell us about the ocean and, you know, what they do for productivity and other things. Maybe now you could tell us about yourself as a religious person. I'll preface my remarks by saying I, I am an agnostic. I think if you're going to be a scientist and a religious person, you have to kind of follow yourself and, you know, put yourself into that category. I was raised a uh, Roman Catholic in a very liberal Roman Catholic tradition, which was great until the late 1970s when reform movement in the Catholic Church got stopped dead. And I realized that, you know, I wasn't going to be able to tolerate the church's stance on women and on gay people. And, and it was just wrong. So I kind of stopped practicing as a Catholic. But when I got married, my wife was an Episcopalian. I was familiar with their traditions and all that kind of stuff. So I attended Episcopalian church regularly. Linda and I have been going to the same church in Isla Vista since about 1990. We're part of that world. But again, it's a very, a very progressive, very, very liberal church. My traditions are all very progressive. Um, well, and it's an important community for you. It is. Um, and I think that's kind of the big thing that attracts me to religion is, is the sense of community and, you know, things you can get from the community you get from, from your church, basically. It's, it's, we live in kind of a, I don't know what to say. People complain about the modern world all the time, but we don't have the traditional sort of family units and 
and social units based around our village that we, you know, have had over over time. And so these church communities tend to be kind of like substitutes for that. It's uh, I don't spend as much time with my neighbors in the houses next door to where I live. I do with the people from my church, you know, and, and you, you get the opportunity to, to do good works, you know, um, uh, to help out with the community and places where there's need. Our, our church has had a long time, had a food bank and a um, meal program for food insecure students. We host, have hosted for many years, uh, you know, dinner, weekly dinner for the homeless community. We currently host a, a mobile shower truck that comes around a couple times a week for the same sorts of purposes. We work closely with uh, UCSB Sustainability, and there's a, an operation called the Isla Vista Compost Collective, which is hosted on our property. They, they collect compostable materials from all over, all over the town where the university is and, and develop it into useful compost, basically using our, our yard for that, which is at our church, which is really great. Oh, that's um, great. So, so I, you know, I get to peripherally or, or directly participate in a lot of these things, and, and that's also a good attraction of having a quasi-religious life. Excellent. Okay, so let's go back to that that comment you made about being an agnostic, because I get I guess yeah. that gets at the heart of the theme of of yeah. this episode of the podcast, and is that is there a conflict between science and religion? <laughs> no. Okay, we're done. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. I mean, um, well, okay. Let me tell you how I think about this problem, because I think it's a it's obviously a, historically a huge question. It's a big deal. I think there's two sort of features of religion that apply. And one is that all religions have these creation stories and they have stories about miracles and other things that that sort of fall outside rationality in a lot of ways. As a scientist would look at it, you know, there are these these, you know, creation stories which talk about deities and, and all that kind of stuff. And that believing in that stuff is 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 not scientific and because you can't you know this, these are not theories that can produce hypotheses that are testable in the real world and, and things like that you know it's it's very easy to make up stories about deities in such a way that they're not you know perceivable by our instruments and you know we can't actually test hypotheses about them that's an issue and that's kind of the one most people focus on when they talk about science versus religion, they look at these creation stories, they look at miracles and they look at deities and, and these types of things. And they say, well, that's impossible. That's not, it's, it's outside the bounds of, of, okay. of science. So therefore it's, so therefore it's wrong. So it's, and, it's, it's impossible and not falsifiable. Yeah. I mean, very much so. And, but the thing is, I mean, if you really think about the creation stories and mythology and all this kind of stuff, they're, they're not, there to actually explain the universe in the way a physicist or a cosmologist would explain the universe. They're there to, you know, provide lessons for the communities that existed at the time when there are written scriptures or oral traditions or whatever, when these things were originated. People often talk about how, you know, the Pentateuch has all these like rules for, for living in, in a world as a community and all this kind of stuff. And that people, you know, your, your child who says why always comes back to, well, okay, we, we got these rules from, from Yahweh or something like that. There's a social purpose behind these things, which, you know, has really nothing to do with natural science. I think a lot of, of scientists over the years who have been religious or observant of religious traditions or, or believers in, 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 you know, deities and all that kind of stuff, they have rationalized this by saying there is, there are things in the universe, 
even if they're only in the universe of the mind, that cannot be tested and cannot be, you can't apply science to it. And they they do that in, in different ways. Um, and this really kind of famous, famously Newton in the Princip- Principia basically said he's not going to delve into what the, the what did he say? The causes and seats of the, the forces and the, 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 the natural laws that he talks about. He didn't say, yeah, I'm not going to talk about what gravity comes from. Here's how gravity behaves. And, you know, that's a, largely how, how scientists work now uh, until you get into sort of the higher levels of cosmology. So I guess my, my point about agnosticism is, and, and atheism is like, and deism is they're not scientific. It's not, it's not a, a scientific way to look at the world. And I think, I, I, I think you have to be agnostic if you're going to be a scientist because you, you can't test these things now and, and maybe never. And so you can't say they don't exist and you can't say they do exist. So it's just, again, it's, it's outside the bounds of science. Hmm. I have a few thoughts here. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not, why do you have to approach religion rationally? Oh, well, you don't. Um, if you, um, how do I put this? Uh, I think, you know, we can, we can probably easily draw a line between, you know, not thinking about religion rationally and then not thinking about the natural world rationally as well. And so that's what happens with fundamentalism is they say, okay, well, this is true and this is pure and this is all correct and nothing can, can contradict that. And so when, you know, obviously science contradicts that a lot of times because people are, are drawing conclusions about the universe based on non-scientific things. And so that's, that's how you get fundamentalism is you, if you, if you don't think rationally about your religion and, and where the traditions and all that comes from and why they're actually there and you know, you, you fall into this trap of believing or, or having to defend the beliefs of, of things that are really not, you know, scientific and they can have consequences in the real world. A lot of, you know, real serious problems in the United States right now are being driven by people who, you know, claim to be religious and that their religious doctrine says this. And so therefore the, you know, everybody in society has to behave the same way. And that's, that's not rational. Yeah, I know. Looking in from the outside, I don't belong to an organized religion. Um, it does frighten me a little bit how religion gives people a moral authority that they haven't necessarily earned. And no, so you a... can do terrible things if you think that God is on your side. Mm-hmm. That's where the other the other way I think about the conflict between religion and science is perhaps a little bit more practical in real world is religions have always wielded political and social power. That leads to compromises, again, along the nature of what we've been talking about but other things are, are even sort of a little bit more cynical if you want to look at it that way I, we were talking about galileo when we were first talking about this because i was reading a book by davis sobel called galileo's daughter which talks a lot about galileo um, sort of from the perspective of his older daughter who was in a convent and her letters to galileo have survived whereas galileo's letters to her were destroyed as part of you know his persecution but you know galileo ran across both of these issues there were some, you know, creation stories in a sense that actually went back to sort of before Christianity, the Aristotelian philosophy and all that kind of stuff. And the, you know, authorities in the church had decided that, okay, this is, this is correct. There's a problem there with that, you know, because once you started coming up with scientific observations, people being sort of more systematic, having better instrumentation like Galileo's telescopes, they started realizing that, you know, the Aristotelian concept of the world wasn't quite right but the church had already doubled down on that so this is how you have to think about things 
And, you know, at the time Galileo was alive, the Pope personally ruled like about a third of Italy as, you know, a, a temporal leader as well. And, you know, he had a, a populace and, you know, nobility and all these things to take care of. You know, he was up against the Medicis, who, you know, were pretty good at wielding temporal power. And the Thirty Years' War was going on as well, which is probably the greatest religious conflict in Europe. I mean, it was just devastating and huge. And and Pope Urban, was, I guess Galileo's second pope, uh, wasn't managing it well. So there's some there's a bunch of history that goes back. I'll talk about that just a little bit because I think it's really, really, really cool and interesting. Pope Urban was originally a big ally of Galileo's. Everybody in Italy thought, you know, Galileo was fantastic. You know, this whole science thing was new to people and they were really excited about it. And the Jesuit order, who actually educated me at one point or another, you know, had a whole group of people who basically went into science and uh, the inquisitive Jesuits. And they made a lot of important scientific discoveries. And then they kept running across this problem with the church insisting on Aristotelian philosophy. So they had to, you know, kind of dance around that. And I think at the time Galileo was alive, basically when he had been presenting these things, I think many, 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 many people in the church realized that the Copernican system was correct, or at least partially correct. The sun wasn't going around the earth, all this kind of stuff. It just, you know, it made a lot more sense given the observance, but they couldn't say anything about it because of the temporal power that, you know, the Pope was with. And in Galileo's particular problem was his was timing. I mean, he was there at a bad time. I mean, because the Reformation was kind of reaching its peak and these these holy wars in Europe were, were just, you know, absolutely devastating. And Urban wasn't managing it very well, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, any sort of questioning of the authority of the Pope was seen as like, okay, well, this is, this is heresy. And that had very little to do with science and exploration and, you know, discovery and all that kind of stuff and a whole lot with the, the temporal power of the Pope. And then what, what was kind of the last straw there was that there was this Jesuit named Christoph Scheiner, who was a very early user of telescopes. And he had been one of the first to observe sunspots. And he thought they were satellites that were, or, uh, you know, like the Galilean moons orbiting around the sun. Galileo didn't agree. Uh, and he wrote a lot of very scathing letters, just really just savaging this, this guy for being wrong. And Galileo could be very sarcastic, uh, very impolitic. And, you know, years later, Schneier ends up in Rome being a very close advisor to the Pope. And, and he basically just said, hey, look, this, this guy is questioning your authority. He's questioning the authority of the church. It was a, just a straightforward political hit job by a scientist. You know, reviewer two had really just savaged him and he was getting his <laughs> he was getting his revenge. Yeah. <laughs> and that wouldn't have happened. Urban and, and Galileo had gone back way back. You know, they were good friends. They were, you know, both supported by the Medicis and. It just was the timing was bad. So, you know, not only was there a creation story problem, but there was this temporal power thing is, like, you know, the Pope actually had authority over people. They he founded the Inquisition to go and make sure everybody towed the line. And, you know, and I, Pope Francis is in the same boat right now, which is he wants things to change. He can't. It's just there's this institutional blah. But it is sort of all tied up in who has authority and who has the power to dictate what the particular culture is and and who gets to have the power. Yep. Is that really what's at the heart of it? I had never thought of it that way before. Well, I kind of, yeah, I mean, I, I, I run across enough rational people as in the, in the religious world, both laity and, and clergy that I think, okay, you know, not everyone is wedded to 
little, you know, tiny passages in, in the scriptures. Again, looking in from the outside, it seems like everything's in there on some level and you can pick and choose. I mean, you have to pick and choose. Yeah, that's true. And I, I think that's kind of what the New Testament is largely about is like, okay, there's too much. We have to basically start over with some very, very simple rules that no Christian has ever followed ever since then. And it's a lot more, well, the, the whole love your neighbor thing, right? That was, you know, tricky. an important That's part tricky. of the, the <laughs> message of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, very simple to say, very difficult to achieve, oh, yeah. but I think it's very powerful and influential. And, and, you know, a lot of things about what Jesus of Nazareth's philosophy was, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's almost like non-controversial if you just talk about it. It's controversial in the sense that, you know, he was saying what you do and what you believe and, you know, your kindness to other people, your acceptance of other people is, is much more important than, you know, following the rules of your religion. And that kind of crosses religious boundaries. I mean, it crosses sectarian boundaries and all that kind of stuff. It's kind of it's kind of cool. Listening to this, this then this is an interesting point then, because then there are these two different aspects to religion. You have the religion that gives you a philosophy for the way you behave in the world. And then you have the part of religion that says, well, I guess there's more than one aspect. These are the people who have the power and they have to be obeyed. And then the part of religion that says this is how the universe works. Yeah, those are all aspects of the conflict between science and religion. And I think as a scientist, the part of science that, that deals with the physical world, you know, obviously has dispensed with the creation stories and miracles and all that kind of stuff a long time ago. There's, there's other things going on there that's not oh, what I, so what that I, can be tested. What I love about so science is that you can really, you can go back to the first moments after the Big Bang. Once you, you know, you get into the universe that where the energy is spread out enough for the laws of, of physics and chemistry as we know them today to start operating. And then you can really kind of explain everything, all the big stuff from there, right? You can explain why we have all the elements we have and why they behave the way they behave and then how that leads to everything else. And you have this internally consistent model that that is probably is nowhere near 100% correct, but it works pretty darn well and we're always working on it, yep. right? And that for me is what's really cool about science. On That's the other sure. hand, you know, mythology is fun and amazing and mystical and that must also strike a chord with people it really does you know it's like reading fiction or you know even science fiction it gets you out of out of your existence into thinking about other things and and bigger things you know i i've never been a big fan of metaphysics but there is always you know we're always going to keep discovering things science is not going to come to an end that's that's a very interesting little bit about where science has kind of gone wrong in this in this aspect is is just the the thought that everything is going to be explained and everything can be explained by what we know right now i i think that's that's kind of close to you know believing in a creation story in a in a mm-hmm. in a in a religious way i think that you know people who think about ai or who worry about ai becoming intelligent and becoming a threat to humanity and all that kind of stuff those, those are, are kind of like worrying about the apocalypse as was, you know, mm-hmm. written in the Christian Bible. It's like it's it's a religious belief. It's not science. Uh, a lot of that comes from sort of this Victorian era where 
people believed that, okay, all we have to do is figure out what the natural laws are, like Newton started doing and, and figure out what they all are and then apply that to all of nature. And that'll explain everything. Um, and, you know, we know from research in the last few decades that complex systems are, are extremely difficult to predict. We can't know everything. Oh, no. And they have uh, so many unintended consequences and right, emergent properties right. and all those fancy terms. Yes, exactly. And, but you know, it's exciting, though, you know, it keeps as a, as a scientist or even as a person who's curious about these things, you know, it really keeps you on your toes. Yeah. Yeah. And and to me, that's that's nothing to do with religion. It doesn't conflict with, you know, any of the, the metaphysics of the of the world religions because they're just outside. They're outside the natural world. And what the bounds of the natural world are, there are bounds to the natural world. You mentioned that, you know, we can resolve things happening just immediately after the Big Bang. But you know, there's a certain amount of time before the Big Bang where currently, at any rate, we can't. And I think oh, there's you always can't get going there to... because you don't know what the rules are. Yeah. Right. So you, you, it's unknowable. It's unknowable. So there is some of our universe, even from a scientific, from a very rational, from a very scientific, from you know the best of our knowledge and and our um, philosophy of science that we we can't know. There are things that we just can't know. You know, this is perhaps a controversial opinion, but I think things like, you know, what we call human intelligence, I think that might just fall into that, into that yeah, consciousness. Yeah. 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 And then, but, you know, of course, that is a testable hypothesis in the sense that, you know, if somebody does actually make a real human intelligence from mechanisms, mm-hmm. right, then that will be refuted. Mm-hmm. So it is a scientific way of thinking about things, but it is also very, you know, it's very difficult to to resolve that. And I think it could go, I think it could go either way. Descartes took a lot of heat for that and actually ended up abandoning it. But, you know, the whole thought of a, the mind being separate from mechanisms of the body, but, you know, scientists and philosophers who come on from there, some of them, not all of them think that it's an emergent property of the complex system that is a, is the human brain, so to speak. So it's like, well, I mean, it is, but okay. that isn't really an answer at the same time. Because what uh, does that even mean? You know, it's just like, whew, it's like when people talk about uh, you know, I don't know. It's like a black box. It's like a black box. It's like string theory. And, you know, when people first start talking about string theory, it's like, oh, well, you can't test this. But, you know, there are aspects that can be tested that that do make predictions. Again, it's another way of looking at the world that doesn't say, like Newton said, what the causes and seats are. Where does, where does gravity actually come from? Well, there's these particles. It's a graviton. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah. I... Where did the particle come from? And so, you know, at some point yeah. you get... And I'm not saying that 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 that's never going to be addressed by science. That would be a very bad that would be a very bad statement for me to make because I think perhaps they can't. Drawing a boundary on the observable universe is well, there is a boundary on the observable universe, but you okay. know there, we, there may be more things we can find out about it that we don't know before we um, get to the point where we're really at. Well, it just is because it is. Yeah, yeah. or it isn't reducible further than that. Yeah, and so you know, getting back to our theme, I think there's plenty of room for uh, religious belief and religious activity, particularly this part that I like, you know, the community and all that kind of stuff, building and, and, and having a philosophy that doesn't conflict at all with being a scientist and thinking rationally about the universe and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think the conflicts arise where, you know, you have this non-scientific belief in creation stories and miracles and all that kind of stuff. And then when your organization invests in that has you know temporal social power that i don't know it's almost like an inevitable feature of 
of human societies is you get politics. Yeah. And yeah. it is not required. You don't have to have that. Uh, but it does happen. So I think that's where the conflicts come from. I think they come from these sort of more cynical Christoph Snyder whispers, whispers into Pope Urban's ear that, you know, like <laughs> Galileo was mean to me. Oh, and he's by underlying undermining your authority. And you know, Pope Urban's trying to fight this war with with the Protestants and and he's like, I, I can't have that. So Galileo's gotta go down. Nothing of that was anything to do with anything in the Holy Scriptures. It was about Aristotle, who, you know, lived long before Jesus. The, the church had just happened to say, okay, this is this is how we're going to look at the world. And it was wrong. It had some, you know, good themes to think about. But in terms of like the actual practical purposes, no, the, you know, sun doesn't go around the earth. The sun is not a perfect sphere. And there are no shells containing the celestial body, all that kind of stuff. It's, it's not right. But the church, in, you know, imbued that with non-religious authority. Oh, I, I was just thinking, God, so I, I hate to say it, but fake news has been around for a long time. And people in power lying to you and saying they yeah saying one thing even though they know it's not true god this is none of this is yeah. new huh there's a, a real fun bit of irony in this so galileo basically had two incidents where he was commanded to you know stop talking about heliocentrism and the first one was a lot milder and there was a, a cardinal bellarmino who basically organized all this stuff he was one of the inquisitive jesuits he knew a lot about what was becoming science. Nevertheless, he'd been, you know, basically said, you know, we can't talk about this stuff, the Copernican stuff, because it's, you know, the church has said this. And so he basically, you know, helped Galileo avoid getting in trouble. He, he got in trouble and couldn't publish stuff, but he basically did that. And Galileo swore up and down that he didn't believe in heliocentrism. It was just another way of calculating the date of Easter, which is how Copernicus got there, oh, okay. basically. Mm -hmm. Copernicus was a priest, you know. Mm -hmm. he, he was like, okay, you know, we need to calculate the date of Easter, just like the rabbis need to calculate the date of Passover. And and the, the way we have of doing it has got so many exceptions and so many rules, and it's just the whole the whole thing doesn't make any sense. But, you know, if you do it this way, think about it from this perspective, then it's a lot easier to calculate. And, and whether or not Copernicus actually, you know, believed that was the way the solar system was structured is, is kind of an open question. We don't know. But Bellarmine, Bellarmino, said to Galileo, I mean, this is how you have to look at it to, to stay out of trouble. And and Galileo did for a long time, but then evidence just kept mounting. And, and Galileo was a very willful, very sarcastic, very entitled dude. Was he also a believer? I mean, what kind of position does this put him in personally? Like, does he struggle well, he said, with this? I think he took a very rational approach to these things. He said, Aristotle isn't God. Aristotle isn't Jesus. Maybe we need to look away from Aristotle. And so that's where he came across, ran across problems with the political aspect of things. And the political aspect of things didn't let the church evolve, still doesn't let the church evolve away from these primitive beliefs. Well, okay. Uh, so then, and this again is this fundamental conflict between people who want society to progress and people who want society to go back to where it was X number of years ago. Right. Again, it just boils down to a question of who has the power, right? I mean, that's what society yeah. progressing is about. Is It's about power and wealth and how you treat people. Right, exactly. And, you know, the, the Christian church ran across this problem almost right away. One of the church's earlier philosophers was St. Paul. Uh, he was a Roman citizen, and he had 
you know, this is how society's got to be. Everybody's got to be in these boxes. And he said some things in passing almost that, you know, today, today are just like they're taken as absolute law by fundamentalists. And occasionally I want to point out to these people that, hey, you know, um, St. Paul was not Jesus. <laughs> you want to be a Christian. Why don't you pay attention to what Jesus said? And with the marriage question, Jesus said marriage is a good thing. You know, and he said specifically marriage between a man and a woman is a good thing. But that was the only kind of marriage that existed in Jesus's society at the time. But now everyone is saying that, oh, you know, Jesus said only marriage between a man and a woman is a good thing. It's like, no, Jesus did not say that. Jesus said marriage is a good thing. And, you know, St. Paul said some bad things about gay people. But again, St. Paul, not Jesus. So, and then, you know, of course, when the Romans, when the Roman emperor basically took over, christianity and and made it the state religion of the roman empire that wrecked everything obviously i mean that that built this whole bridge between mysticism and temporal power that has just never really been erased it's always sort of lurking in there like a you know herpes virus in the uh in the traditions of the church that you know it's like well they're in, the priests are in charge and it's like well they shouldn't be Okay, so this opens up a a whole other theme for another interview, and that is the conflict within the church between, uh, I don't know, what are the camps? What did you say, the the more mystical, community-oriented camps and the people who want the power and to say this is the way it is? Yeah. That must be a bigger conflict than, quote-unquote, science versus religion. Um, Well, it is, and I think it it leads to all kinds of other conflicts in the real world and in in the philosophical world that you could talk about forever that's not something i'm an expert on no but it, so in a sense science has it easier because it it just needs to try and figure out the way the world works through experimentation on observation and asking questions in the right way in ways that can be tested much yeah. easier thing well yes i mean it can be there's a temptation a lot of cosmologists perhaps and and others fall into this temptation of of thinking that they've got it you know they they know everything and they can explain everything with with the tools that they currently have and i i think that's a little bit that's a little bit simplistic and and again in some cases can actually devolve into a belief system which is indistinguishable from a religious belief system so okay but that's not a problem oceanographers have studying carbon circulating through the deep ocean and surface ocean yeah well the problem we have there is is not enough data um not enough tools you know all that kind of stuff but those are in theory solvable problems yeah well and it's a big ocean and there's lots of stuff to study so um i guess we can stop here uh because we've been talking for a while so i want to say thank you this has been really really interesting i have lots of stuff to go away and think about and thank you very much this interesting well, thank discussion. you, Christina. This is, this is great. I love talking with you. This has been super fun. And that's the end of Season 2, Episode 7. Thank you again for listening. And don't forget to support us on Patreon. Thank you for listening to Solar Punk Presents, a podcast hosted and produced by Ariel Kroon and Christina Della Rocha. The audio for this episode was recorded in part on the traditional territory of the neutral Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe peoples and in Germany. The opening and closing music of this podcast is Water Cooler Gang by Monkey Warhol. 
available for use under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. Until the next episode, keep dreaming and keep up the good work.